out your scriptures to Matthew chapter 22 as we continue in our march through Matthew. Sometimes I wonder if, you know, we're so dependent on, on uh, technology. We all know the Apostles' Creed, but that little pause, we are all just willing to stop right in the middle. I guess we're not going to finish it. We're just going to stop. No forgiveness of sins. <laughs> so what happens when you die? What's beyond this? What does the afterlife entail? And if so, if there is an afterlife, what does it look like? That's the question that each religion attempts to answer in some way, shape, or form. That's the pursuit of of most people in some way, shape, or form, dealing with what comes next. Elon Musk, the man the New York Times has called the most successful entrepreneur of all time, answered this question in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine recently. Rolling Stone asked him, do you believe in God? And Musk answered, I try to let the weight of evidence determine my opinion. Nice dodge. So Rolling Stone continued, what do you think happens after you die? I think I cease to exist. I hope I'm wrong in a positive way, he said. But most likely, you're just gone. He's not alone in thinking this. Whether you know it or not, the people that you bump into, the people you see at the grocery store, at Walmart, there's a modicum of them that, that think this same thing. That believe that, that this is it. That because this is it, it creates a person that, as the scriptures say over and over again, eats and drinks and be, be merry now because this is it. So why not? I don't know where maybe some of you are on this question today. Maybe some of you sitting here think this is all there is. And if that's true, you're not alone. Today in our text, we're going to meet a group of people that believe exactly as Elon Musk believed. That this is it. And they come to ask Jesus a question about what comes next. Look with me in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 23. That same day, some Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. We're going to pause there. The Sadducees were a small group, a small Jewish sect, just like we have 
different denominations that believe different little things in theology. So Judaism had that. We have the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptists. They had the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Essenes and the Sadducees, a group of people that believed certain things. They were considered the aristocracy of, of those groups. They were extremely wealthy, well-connected, powerful. They controlled the temple. And so that's where they got most of their money, from the tithes of the temple and, and from the, the, the sale of the sacrificial animals. They were also very politically pro-Rome. You can imagine why. Why rock the boat? But they were also religiously unique in Judaism. They were generally anti-supernatural. Generally anti-supernatural. They did not believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spirit. They didn't believe in the resurrection or an afterlife. You see this come up in the book of Acts in chapter 23 when Paul is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is composed of these two groups the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he brings up that he believes in the resurrection of the dead as he's explaining the gospel of Jesus. And a fight breaks out, if you remember, in that chapter between the Sadducees and the Pharisees over, is there an afterlife? Over, is there a resurrection? This belief developed in the Sadducees because they only believed that the first five books of the Bible, of the Torah, were inspired. Only the first five books. The rest was kind of commentary on those first five books. And since the Pentateuch doesn't have a particularly well-developed theology of the afterlife, neither did they. And this led to their conviction. So when Jesus hears them, when Jesus sees them coming, and he hears their question, he knows that there's another trap to be sprung. Let's look at the question that they asked, starting in verse 24. The Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, which of the seven will the wife be? For they all had her. The Jewish leaders had already decided a long time ago to, to trap Jesus, to kill Jesus in some way. So they're just taking their turns. If you just flip back, you can see that the Pharisees and the Herodians had just tried to trap him in that tax trap. You know, should we pay taxes? If, they, if he says no, he's in trouble with the Romans. If he says yes, he's in trouble with all the Jews. And of course, Jesus, being the masterful teacher, says give to... Caesar, what is Caesar's, and give to Rome what is Rome, teaching us about our dual citizenship, our, our two responsibilities. 
But the Jewish elite were not about to give up. And so the Sadducees approach him with a question about the absurdity of the afterlife. That's what they're getting at. How absurd can the afterlife be? The absurdity of the afterlife. Some people are good at trick questions. You know, these questions where they just posit, it posits something and there's a, there's a trick in there. My mind doesn't work that way. It stumps me almost every time. Questions like, what can be broken but never held? A promise. You're willing, you're, you're good. What is always coming but never arrives? Tomorrow. What belongs to you but gets used by everyone else more than you? Oh my goodness, you guys are great. My mind freezes. My mind just goes, I don't know. I can't even come up with what it is. But not Jesus's. His mind is nimble just like yours. The Sadducees pose a question meant to show the absurdity of the resurrection, the absurdity of the afterlife. And he gets it. Now to understand this this kind of Gordian knot of a question, you have to understand another Jewish custom called the Liverite marriage. The Liverite marriage was a, was a gift given to God's people in Deuteronomy 25, whereby if, if a husband dies leaving his wife with no heir, the brothers are to marry her and and give an heir so that that brother's name can continue. It was also a very kind thing by the Lord to do because the widow that provides for the widow that had little or no economic or social standing. And so it's providing for for the widow as well. We see good examples and bad examples of this in Scripture. We see a, a bad example of, of this Leverite marriage custom in Genesis chapter 38 when Judah's son Ur dies with Tamar. We see a really, really tender, sweet, wonderful, loving example of this in the book of Ruth, don't we? So the Sadducees leverage this law in order to construct a hypothetical story of the death of a husband and then six consecutive brothers who are fulfilling their vow, this, this custom, and then dying. And they say, if there is a resurrection, as you say, which brother is the husband? How absurd. They were showing the absurdity of life after death. How's God going to sort all this out? Is it the first husband? Or is it the, the last husband? Was it the, the husband that the woman loved the most? Or, or maybe it was the husband that, that served and sacrificed the most. Which one, Jesus? Jesus handles it masterfully. Look with me at verse 29 and following. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished 
at his teaching. I remember some years ago, I was in my office and I was um, watching some some videos um, of Tim Keller. He had been invited uh, to Google, to these these Veritas forums in Google, and he was he was fielding questions by the employees of Google, and you can just imagine. The, the types of questions he was getting. You can just imagine the way that these questions were being asked. They were hard, somewhat antagonistic questions. And he, he never got angry. And, and on top of that, he answered them with such grace and truth, the wonderful balance. He, he answered them n- nuancing the gospel, the whole time. And it kind of left the questioners without follow-ups, kind of silent. It was, it was amazing. I remember sitting back in my chair thinking, first of all, gosh, I wish I could do that. But then also just being astonished at how he answered those questions. What a gift. I think that's how the people felt when they heard Jesus' answer here. They were just astonished, it says. And I think they're astonished on two levels. Their first astonishment was his description of the afterlife. His description of the afterlife. At the height of the Cold War in 1982, November of 1982, then President George H. Bush represented the U.S. at the funeral of the former Soviet leader, Leonid Brezhnev. Bush was deeply moved by a silent protest carried out by Brezhnev's widow. She stood motionless by her husband's coffin until seconds before the coffin was closed. Then just as the soldiers touched the lid to close it, she performed an act of great courage in that environment and great hope. She reached out and she made the sign of the cross over Brezhnev's heart. There, in the heart of secular atheistic power, the wife of the man who ran that whole nation hoped her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life. That Jesus just might have mercy on her husband. The Sadducees had no such hope. They didn't believe in anything past this life. And Jesus tells them, in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but be like the angels. He was telling them, there's something beyond this life. And it's pretty wonderful. He's saying, what's beyond here is pretty wonderful. He answers their question that the woman is married to none of the seven brothers because there's no marriage in heaven. We'll be like the angels. Now, a point of clarification here, he's not saying we're going to be angels but we're going to be like the angels in this respect. 
that we will not be married nor be given in marriage. But how wonderful is that? Why is that wonderful? Why do I use that adjective? Marriage is created to be the closest, most intimate relationship you have. Where two flesh become one. Where the most profound heart dialogues actually happen. Where you are fully known, fully exposed, yet fully loved. And Jesus tells us that there's no more of that in heaven. How can that be wonderful? It's a concept that my family has asked and pondered for the last five years since, since my brother-in-law died. My, my sister has been asking this question. Less now, more when he was dying and dead. My father is asking this question right now, all the time. How can it be better than what I had? The Bible teaches us that marriage has at least three purposes this side of glory. That of multiplication, Genesis 2. No need for that in glory. Second purpose is glorification. Marriage is created to give glory to God. That's what Ephesians 5 is telling us, right? The marriage is supposed to be such that as the world looks at our marriages, they are supposed to see a picture of Christ in his church. Christ perfectly loving by sacrifice and serving and leading. And the church, the wife, lovingly, wholeheartedly submitting and following and helping. This display will no longer be necessary in glory because shadow will become reality. The third purpose is sanctification. Marriage is the relational anvil on which most of us get sanctified a great amount of the time. In marriage, we learn to sacrifice and be other-centered, not self-centered. In Sunday school, uh, uh, Aaron said a wonderful thing. You know, we are are warped. Our our soul is warped so that we are curved back on on ourselves. How true. In marriage, we learn to warp out the other way. It is a place where we ask for forgiveness and we give forgiveness. Marriage is a place to lead and to follow, to serve and be served, to love because of and in spite of. But all that will not be necessary because there will be no more sin. There's no more sin. Revelation 21, 27 tells us that nothing unclean will enter heaven. Once you leave this life, as Augustine put it, you pass from being able not to sin, or right now, we're able not to sin, to being unable to sin. Nancy Guthrie recently interviewed the Christian author, Johnny Erickson Tata. Most of you know that she was... uh, broke her spine and became a quadriplegic and has been in a wheelchair since 1960, 
when she was 17 years old. Guthrie interviewed her, and Johnny expressed an interesting perspective. Listen to this. She said, you look at me in this wheelchair, paralyzed for over 50 years, and most people would think, oh, you're looking forward to a new body. And yes, that's one of the fringe benefits. But what I'm really looking forward to is a new heart. I can't wait to have my heart set free from sin. A heart free from manipulating others with precisely timed phrases. A heart free from fudging the truth. A heart free from hogging the spotlight, starting to believe my own press releases. A heart free from not believing the best of others. A heart free from caving into fear and anxiety about the future. And I would add this one. A heart free to love everyone fully, intimately, deeply, and equally. Equally. Because of that truth, the intimacy of our marriage pales in comparison to the intimacy that we will have for even the least in the kingdom. And won't that be wonderful? I mean, think about it, brothers and sisters. We hide. We avoid people, don't we? We avoid people in our our own covenant relationships here. We have, why do we have best friends? Why do we have BFFs? Because other people we don't want to be around. That'll all be gone. You'll have a deeper, more intimate relationship with those you know the least in the kingdom than your spouse right now. That's unimaginable. But isn't that wonderful? Ben Patterson wrote in his book, Waiting, God is up to something so big, so unimaginably good, that your mind cannot contain it. What we see God doing is never as good as what we don't see. We don't see, and we can hardly imagine it, brothers and sisters. But however good your relationship is with your spouse in this life, however much you love them, however much your, your deep in-heart dialogue with them, however open you think you are to them, it pales in comparison to the relationships we'll have with each other in glory. That's something to look forward to. Perhaps you're sitting there right now thinking, that's scary. That's sin in you. And that's sin in me. The astonishing truth is that in the life to come, our relationships will be equally wonderful. And that's astonishing. But the crowd is astonished in a second way by the astonishing power of God. Edward Bennett William was a prominent lawyer in the 20th century in the Washington, D.C. area. He owned the Baltimore Orioles, and his reach and influence and power in D.C. was so broad that at his funeral, famous and the infamous came. 
including senators, Supreme Court justices, felons and bookies, waiters, doormen, and billionaires. It's said that as he was dying, someone teased him about all the power and influence he had in D.C., and he looked up at them and said, Power? I'm about to meet the real power. I think that's the missing element that the Sadducees didn't have. They didn't, they didn't understand the power of God. They didn't believe in life after death because they knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God, Jesus says here. You don't know your scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus then quotes from the very scriptures they claim to believe. He quotes from Exodus 3.6. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice the tense here. I am the God. Not I was. I am the God. And then he says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus says, the patriarchs are living as I speak to you. They didn't go into the nothingness that Elon Musk talks about. This life is not all there is. He quotes from the very scriptures that they claim is inspired to show that God has the power to bring people from this life into eternal life. That's the power of God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went from this life to eternal life with God by faith in the coming Messiah. How did people get saved in the Old Testament? The same way we get saved in the New Covenant. They looked forward to the coming. We look back. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look back at what Jesus did. But they looked forward to what Jesus was going to do, the Messiah. The scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God would fulfill his covenant. And what does it say there? And he credited to him as righteousness. He trusted what God said. They believed that God would send a Savior one day. They didn't know all the details. We know all the details. They didn't know all the details. But they knew he was going to come from the tribe of Judah. They knew the scepter wasn't going to depart. They knew that he was going to be a king. They knew because of Genesis 15 that the Savior was going to take the punishment for us breaking the covenant. That's exactly what Jesus came and did. Galatians 3 tells us that he was born under the law. He was born subservient to the law. And he fulfilled the whole law. We just were talking in Sunday school today. What does it mean that he was tempted in every way, yet what was without sin? And we talked about that. And it was a fascinating conversation. That's what Jesus did. He lived a perfect life. He earned salvation. He earned righteousness. Something we can never do. And then John 10 tells us that he willingly laid down his life. No one takes it from me, he said to the people. I willingly lay it down for you. 
allowing his blood to be spilt and not ours, taking the punishment we deserve for breaking the covenant that we break every day and dying in our place. And then the Father, in conjunction with the Spirit, raised him from the dead so that anyone who puts their trust in Christ goes from this life to the next life. Because this isn't all there is. So Jesus could be the bridge through his resurrection to life eternal. That's what Jesus is explaining to Martha that day in front of her her dead brother's Lazarus tomb. That's what he's explaining to her. You know, Martha's saying, if only you had gotten here, if only Jesus, you had gotten here, you had the power to heal him. She believed in that power. But she didn't believe in the power to raise him. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Why? Because I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. Do you see how pointed he's being? And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. See, when you place your trust in Jesus, you go from life to life. He's that bridge. He was telling her that I, Jesus, I have that power in my resurrection. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if you're sitting here and you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you too will go from life to life. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ and you you don't know the power of his resurrection, I just want to encourage you to place your trust in him because he's the bridge from this life to the next. The Apostle Paul wrote about this In Romans chapter 6, when he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Years ago, somebody said, it's like placing a bookmark in a book that goes somewhere. It's really kind of silly, stupid illustration, but it always stuck with me. You know, Jesus is the book, and, and, and we get wedged in between his pages, and where he goes, we go. The death and resurrection of Jesus was much more than something just happening in history. It was a demonstration of the power of God to bring people back to life. Max Lucado tells a story of a missionary in Brazil who discovered a tribe of Indians in the remote part of the jungle. 
the tribe was in need of medical attention because of a contagious disease. People were dying daily. The hospital, missionary hospital, wasn't that far away. But it was beyond a river that they had to cross. The Indians would not cross that river because they believed that there were evil spirits in that river. And if they went in, they would die. The missionary explained that he had crossed that river to get to them. And he was alive, but they didn't trust him. They didn't believe him. So he took them to the bank of the river and he placed his hand in there. He said, look, nothing's happening. It's okay. And they didn't believe him. And so, so he waded in waist deep and, and splashed water on his face and said, see, nothing. There's nothing here to, to, to fear. And still they didn't trust him. Finally, he dove into the river underwater and swam to the other side of the river. And he came up out of the water. He had entered the water and made it to the other side alive. The Indians broke out in a cheer. And they rushed into the water and made it to the other side. Brothers and sisters, Jesus went into the river of death and came out on the other side. He entered that for you. And if you, like those Indians, trust and follow him, you too will go from life to life. Paul wrote to the Philippian church exclaiming, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection. We've just heard about the power of his resurrection. As the saying goes, if you give your life to Christ, you will be born again. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. Thank you so much for preserving it for us. Thank you that we can read it, that we can soak ourselves in it, that we can see Christ in it. Thank you for your gospel that is found in each and every page that encourages us to put more faith in you. If we don't have faith, to put our faith in you. We do have faith to nurture and encourage that faith. Thank you so much for your word. We pray, Lord, we pray to you, Spirit, that you change us through it. Alter us because of it. We want to be more like you, Christ. We're desperate for that. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen.